Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. You're listening to a show that is all about ideas, about the search for wisdom and knowledge through conversation. My guests all have something to say and have the credentials to say it persuasively. Here, the conversation continues. Thank you for joining me for the latest episode of the Optimistic Curmudgeon. Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, I'm also your guest. Uh, This week's episode is a recording I did at Thales Press's Classical Summit a few months back. I had the opportunity to present a distilled version of my dissertation for the Thales Academy faculty and invited guests. And so the general premise of this show is that everybody on the show either has a PhD, has written a book, or heads up an institution. Uh, I'm excited to say that this past June, I successfully defended my dissertation Uh, I ended up writing about C.S. Lewis and his gender theory and really his idea that what is truly at stake in the question of gender is the right response of gratitude for the marvelous gift of creation. So without any further ado, uh, the rest of this episode is a version of my dissertation. About half an hour. So uh, this is this is going to be an attempt to do that. Um, I I slightly apologize in advance because there are probably going to be some places where you're going to think wow, that's an oversimplification, and gee whiz, that's a generalization. And you're probably right, uh, because the dissertation came out at 260 pages when it was done, and I'm gonna attempt to distill that into about half an hour. Um, I wanna start with just a little bit of a story for why I kind of picked this topic area, why C.S. Lewis. Uh, Several years ago, uh, I I had an opportunity to move on to a leadership role here at Thales Academy, and uh, it was my, pretty early on in that that position uh, we had a cultural moment a cultural moment where a decision had to be given and i found out about the decision after the decision had already been made and it was a cultural moment that there's been lots of those since we now have policies telling leadership exactly how we handle those we didn't have those policies at the time this was the very first uh, student to request access to an opposite sex bathroom and it was just kind of a bit of a, a question. It was like, what do we do in that moment? And the decision was already made, and it was a decision that I was trying to articulate uh, to the rest of the team how exactly I was convinced that there was something significant here. Uh, the decision was made primarily on the utter pragmatic, and understandably so, pragmatic question of, this student needs to have a place to go to the bathroom. That, that's, that's, I think we can all understand, that's a pressing, urgent concern with children. And yet there's something else in play there. And I was struggling with how exactly do I articulate the fact that somehow there's more here. There's more than just the pragmatics. There's a recognition of what the body is. There's a recognition of what the person is. And there's a recognition of how we all interact together in community. And all of that is somehow wrapped up in this question. And I was struggling with how exactly to articulate it. At the same time, I was finishing a uh, doctoral program, uh, at least coursework, and I was looking at the looming dissertation. And of course, as I'm sure you're all aware, the big thing you need to find if you're ever going to write a dissertation is something that's not been written about to death. Uh, They really like it if you can find something really new, and that's hard to do. Um, I've had a lifelong love of C.S. Lewis's books, and I took my last tutorial class, and I spent it on reading C.S. Lewis with a professor one summer. And as I was reading Paralandrum, uh, and I I noticed something, I'd read Paralandrum three or four times before, but these passages leapt out at me this time. All of a sudden I was like, whoa, Lewis is talking about gender. 
And he has these really weird passages where he seems to imply that gender is somehow more real than biological sex. It's like, whoa. And I was like, flip back the table to the uh, copyright page. When was Lewis writing this? 1947, like where this seems so contemporary, yet Lewis is writing about this way back 70 years ago. What's going on? And I was determined, I was like, okay, I think this might be worth looking for. And I quickly started looking around other places Lewis was writing and discovered uh, Lewis has a lot to say about gender. He has a lot of views about masculinity and about femininity, what those are and how we react, uh, in, uh, how we react to those. And I decided this is, this is what I'm gonna explore. I'm gonna see if I can find in C.S. Lewis an answer to my question. How can I articulate this sense? There's something significant going on here. And today I want to kind of share with you what I found over a year of reading Lewis uh, as deeply as possible and then writing about Lewis. Uh, I did find an answer to my question, and I'll, I'll share that with you at the end of the presentation. But what I also found is that that's not really what Lewis is doing. What Lewis is really doing is using gender as a way of explaining all of reality is a gift. And since all of reality is a gift, the proper response to the gift uh, is really gratitude. And Lewis then takes so many parts of our modern disposition and he reframes it. Instead of it being, can I do X or should I do Y? The question then becomes, how do I rightly respond to the gift that has been given? How do I steward that and how do I uh, react uh, in, in, uh, uh, in exchange? Now, to, before we get into Lewis, I wanna kind of set this as a bit of contrast. Uh, this is the same path my dissertation goes down because I think it's helpful just to kind of see where to see Lewis's view in contrast to our general modern stance. I want to lean on uh, two, two, uh, two thinkers, uh, Simone de Beauvoir and Judith Butler, uh, to really set up the modern myth. Now I want to use the word myth in a certain way. I'm currently teaching a mythology and fairy tales class over at Thales College. It's, it's a really fun class to teach. But we spent the opening of that class looking at the fact that myths are not just fictional stories that are fun. They are that, uh, but myths are really attempts to explain some part of the human experience in a way that resonates over time. So myths last because they work on a primal level. Uh, we, we don't tell myths to five-year-olds expecting them to cognitively explain the moral of the myth or the parable. Instead, we tell them myths because they, it helps them understand initial relationships about the world. I wanna use myth in that sense. And there is a myth of modernism that uh, we, we all share. We all breathe this, these ideas. Uh, we, we participate in them just by virtue of living in 2023. Now, Lewis saw this happening in the 1940s, 1950s. He took direct aim at the myth of modernism in his great collection of lectures, The Abolition of Man. But to really set that up, I want to take a look back at Simone de Beauvoir first. Simone de Beauvoir was a fascinating, very significant figure uh, in post-World War II France. Uh, she wrote a uh, book, uh, uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce the French version of the title, but the, the title of the book is The Second Sex. Uh, she is the originator of radical feminism. There are previous feminist thinkers, but de Beauvoir really took feminism into a very different direction. Uh, and I suspect some of you know her name, maybe you've read sections of her work. Uh, she is one of the most widely read feminist authors still to this day. She's a, her work is foundational for every feminine, uh, feminist scholarship or women's studies uh, kind of class in the contemporary academy. I want to note two things from De Beauvoir. 
the first is that De Beauvoir uh, is abs- she's really convinced that womanhood is constructed. It's not necessarily natural or given. Uh, she has the famous line that woman is made, or yeah, woman is made, not born. Uh, the essence of womanhood for De Beauvoir is a so- is a set of social expectations. The second thing I want to note from her, and that's where the first quotation on your sheet is going to come in in just a second, uh, she has an incredibly negative view of feminine biology and the general female experience. Uh, Here's how De Beauvoir describes a teenage girl who is kind of moving into adulthood. Just note the the negativity of what she's describing, and I'll explain this here in just a second. But here's here's what she writes in The Second Sex. Uh, She cannot become grown up without accepting her femininity, and she knows already that her sex condemns her to a mutilated and fixed existence, which she faces at this time under the form of an impure sickness and a vague guiltiness. Her inferiority was sensed at first merely as a deprivation, but the lack of a penis has now become defilement and transgression. So she goes onward towards the future, wounded, shameful, culpable. It is not by increasing her worth as a human being that she will gain value in men's eyes. It is rather by modeling herself upon their dreams. Now, over the course of 850 pages, Simone de Beauvoir develops this incredibly negative view of women. And uh, when she's talking about um, mutilation and fixed existence, that's her description of the process of conception and then giving birth to children. Uh, De Beauvoir really has this very negative view. And you'll notice uh, that she also thinks that uh, she talks about women as lacking, lacking something and that that's really the essence of the feminine. By the end of her book, De Beauvoir argues that really feminine existence is one that is oppressed. It's oppressed by feminine biology and it's oppressed by social expectations. She closes her argument saying that technology should free women from all of these forms of oppression. We'll come back to that in just a second. Second figure I want to look at briefly is Judith Butler. Uh, Judith Butler is a postmodern theorist who was incredibly popular in the academy in the 1990s and early 2000s. Hugely influential. Uh, she wrote this book called Gender Trouble in 1991. Uh, in Gender Trouble, uh, Butler intentionally connects her thought to Simone de Beauvoir and then goes on to argue that both biological sex and gender are social constructs. She describes them as sort of societal scripts that are handed to each person as he or she grows, and that we just reflexively accept the script. Now, uh, you, can, you probably can see where this is going. If you're truly a courageous person, you're not going to accept somebody else's script. You're going to overthrow the script, and you're going to write your own play. You're going to be the star of your very own drama. Now, here's how uh, Judith Butler puts it, and I... I just want to preface this with the fact that Butler is infamous in academic circles for really obtuse writing. (laughs) This is the clearest statement I could find in her book where it seemed that I thought this would be comprehensible, but it still reads like gobbledygook. Uh, Here's her statement. Gender is the repeated stylization of the body, a set of repeated acts within a highly rigid regulatory frame that congeal over time to produce the appearance of substance of a natural sort of being. Here's what she's getting at. Uh, Gender is the repeated attempt to style the body. Now notice it's not the substance of the body, it's the style, it's the outward appearance. It's not what you are, it's a set of repeated acts. Gender for Butler is something that you do. 
So, which means you could do a certain set of acts or you could do a different set of acts. And in doing that different set of acts, you change the outward stylization. There's this highly rigid regulatory frame that's, that's society's expectations that are around you. Those actions then congeal as a sort of jello facade of the outside of the self. That all of this becomes something that is not what you are, but rather what you do. Now, I wanted to start with these two because they illustrate, they are focusing on gender, and that's, that's part of what I want to be able to set Lewis in contrast to. But they also illustrate the general approach of modernism. Modernism as an attitude beginning in the 19th century and growing up through the 20th century looks at the world around us and says the world is oppressive and we need to change the world. We need to, look, we need to change reality so that, it, so that it better fits our desires. That's precisely what both de Beauvoir and Butler are really arguing for. C.S. Lewis is doing something profoundly different. Uh, and for those of you who much prefer your philosophy in propositional form, almost all of what I want to say from uh, Lewis's novels is found in his excellent set of lectures, The Abolition of Man. So if any of you have not read those, I highly recommend them. They're, they're excellent. Um, in the 1940s and into the very early 50s, C.S. Lewis wrote a trilogy of science fiction novels intended for adults. Uh, hopefully everybody in the room is familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, these are Lewis writing on a much more complicated level. Now, what I want to kind of do for a few moments is uh, explain some of what's going on in these three novels. Because Lewis is going to, he's going to develop first a theory of givenness. Then he's going to particularly look at the masculine and the feminine as pieces of reality that are given to us. He's then gonna show us in that hideous strength the way that uh, by becoming more fully masculine and becoming more fully feminine, uh, his male and female characters in that hideous strength save their marriage. But that's not even really what he's up to. We're gonna go to Out of the Silent Planet and see, I wanna trace how what Lewis is really trying to do is trying to re-enchant the imagination. He wants to change the way we look at the world. And in changing that way they look at the world, it changes how we act. But I'm gonna do this kind of out of order. Uh, out of the Silent Planet is really the first one, then Paralandra, then That Hideous Strength. But I wanna focus on Paralandra because that's where most of my research focused. Um, just by a quick show of hands, has anybody read Paralandra? All right, a couple, that's very exciting. Uh, just so that we're all on the same page, I wanna spend a second on plot summary. Uh, Paralandra is Lewis's attempt to write a version of Paradise Lost. He's, there's a lot of parallels to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's set on the planet Venus, which he calls Paralandra in his schema. And we're going to have an Adam and Eve figure, uh, Tor and Tenadril, or the king and the lady, respectively. This is a pre-fall paradise. And like in Genesis and like in Paradise Lost, the question is, will the rational creatures obey God or will they do something different and in doing so doom creation to the curse of sin and death? Um, where Lewis has a lot of fun is in taking Milton's work and then trying to make a couple of changes to do something really different. Uh, he's going to have a character named Ransom who represents God. And there's going to be another character named Weston who represents the demonic. He's kind of the talking snake in the, in the Eden story. And together, then they're, they're both trying to persuade the lady what she should do. Uh, the best part of the novel is when Ransom realizes that the lady has had her chance to say no, and, but the, the devil figure is still asking and asking and asking. 
And Ransom decides the only real thing to do is to take up fist and literally punch out the demonic figure. Uh, and he, he, it's, it's a fabulous, fabulous scene. Now I'll take us back to the beginning of the novel because the beginning of the novel, Ransom arrives on Paralandra. And he initially, uh, he, he doesn't know what his task is yet. He doesn't know that he needs to, he's gonna spend a lot of time talking to the lady. He, but he initially learns that Paralandra is a water planet and it has these huge towering waves. Those waves become really significant. They're the first of two controlling metaphors that Lewis uses to develop his idea of the givenness of reality. Uh, so look with me on your handout. This is the third quote on the front of the page. Uh, this is, this is uh, Ransom's initial experience. There was a wave ahead of him so high that it was dreadful. We speak idly in our world of seas mountain high when they are not much more than mast high. But this was the real thing. If the huge shape had been a hill of land and not of water, he might have spent a whole forenoon or longer walking the slope before he reached the summit. It gathered him into itself and hurled him up that elevation in a matter of seconds. But before he reached the top, he almost cried out in terror. Then he found himself rushing once more downhill. I hope you can envision these towering waves and then ransom floating on the surface of the water. It's, he doesn't know this yet, but it's impossible for him to sink. He, he can't drown, but he has to figure out what to do with these waves. His first response is to try and overcome the wave, to go against the wave. And he discovers that's, that's pointless. He can't do that. Uh, but then he discovers instead, if he receives the wave and then goes where the wave is sending him, he actually gains a slight amount of control over his direction. And that becomes Lewis's first big picture of what the givenness of reality is all about. The wave becomes a depiction of how all things are given to us, and then our question is how do we receive them and go with them according to their nature? Uh, where throughout the novel, the, way, the phrase, the way, this is a wave that was sent, becomes representative of divine providence. That the fact that there is air to breathe and sun to shine, is this is a wave that is sent. When Ransom is hungry and there is food to be had, that is a wave that is sent. Uh, when he needs transportation and a dolphin shows up, <laughs> that too is a wave that is sent. Now, Ransom goes on and a couple, a couple hours later, he arrives on a floating island. And there on that floating island, he discovers a fruit tree. And he's hungry, so he takes a fruit and he eats. And it's significant to note that he did not plant the tree, he did not cultivate the tree. The tree itself is a gift. The fruit is also a gift that is provided to him from Paralandra. Uh, look with me at the next quote, uh, and they particularly notice the description of the pleasure that's found in this fruit. But then it was so different from every other taste that it seemed mere pedantry to call it a taste at all. It was like the discovery of a whole new genus of pleasures, something unheard of among men, out of all reckoning beyond all covenant. For one draught of this back on earth, wars would be fought and nations betrayed. It could not be classified. This is fruit on an unfallen paradise. There is no taint of sin. There is nothing less than perfection. This is the best fruit imaginable and consuming it produces immense, immense pleasure. The question comes then should Ransom take a second fruit? Because he initially thinks, wow, that was so good. I should just repeat that experience. But here's where Lewis gets even more interesting. It's not just that the fruit is good, it's that the fruit was given to satisfy a need. There's a purpose, a telos to the fruit. 
The fruit is given to satisfy his need, but if there, he doesn't have that need, then he should not take the fruit. Take a look at the next quote. As Ransom let the empty gourd fall from his hand and was about to pluck a second one, it came into his head that he was now neither hungry nor thirsty. And yet to repeat a pleasure so intense and almost so spiritual seemed an obvious thing to do. Yet something seemed opposed to this reason. It is difficult to suppose that this opposition came from desire. For what desire would turn from this deliciousness? But for, what, for, but for whatever reason, it appeared to him better to not taste again. He does not take the fruit again. He is, his desire is satisfied. The pleasure was there. He can't repeat the experience. Here's Lewis's second part of this theory of givenness. All of reality is given. It's for us to receive it. But each thing that is given has a nature. It has an essence. And we find joy and pleasure in the gift when we use the gift in accordance with its purpose. If we try to use the gift in an opposite way or beyond its purpose, uh, that, 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 that doesn't work. We get something different. Uh, if you've read uh, Lewis's novel, uh, The Magician's Nephew in the Chronicles of Narnia, this is, this is what's wrong with Jadis climbing over the wall and taking a fruit that should have been a gift, but she takes it and she eats it and it eventually transforms her into the white witch in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It has an effect, but the effect is not the joy and the pleasure that it should have, that it should have brought. Now, from there, the novel proceeds. Ransom defeats the, the bad guy, the uh, West, uh, possessed Weston. And he then, we then get to the end of the novel. And this is the section of pages that initially grabbed my attention. This is where Lewis takes this whole theory of givenness and this picture of a beautiful, unfallen world. And he adds into it a particular description of masculinity and femininity. Here's how he gets there. Uh, in Lewis's mythology, there is a uh, there are planetary spirits that govern Mars and Venus. Malacandra for Mars, Paralandra for Venus. These spirits then incarnate in front of Ransom, and they want to show themselves in shapes that will please the humans in this story. So they show Ransom a variety of different shapes, and Ransom at one point says that he then understood the meaning of gender. This is where we need to know a little bit more about Lewis's backstory and his philosophy. Uh, C.S. Lewis was at one point uh, intending to become a philosophy professor. He didn't go that route because there were no jobs teaching philosophy. Uh, instead, there was this new thing in the English university called the English department. <laughs> they were hiring, so he eventually took a job teaching English. But Lewis always had this love of philosophy. And his, philo his philosophical love was really found in uh, Neoplatonic ideas. So if you remember anything about Plato, I hope you remember that Plato believed there are ideas that are more real than their physical expressions. Uh, the chairs you're all sitting in are, in Plato's view, uh, poor copies of the ultimate idea of a chair that exists in some kind of mental, spiritual space. Lewis thinks that's how this works. He Christianizes it. He believes that there are certain ideas that, rate, that exist in the mind of God, and then those ideas radiate outward through all of creation. This is what Lewis thinks is happening with masculinity and with femininity. And he describes that through these two spirits. Look with me at the, uh, it's the quotation at the bottom of the front half of the page. The two white creatures were sexless, but he of Malacandra was masculine, not male. She of Paralandra was feminine, not female. 
Malachandra seemed to him to have the look of one standing armed at the ramparts of his own remote archaic world in ceaseless vigilance, his eyes ever roaming the earthward horizon whence his danger came long ago. But the eyes of Paralandra opened, as it were, inward, as if they were the curtained gateway to a world of waves and murmurings and wandering airs, of life that rocked in winds and splashed on moss stones and descended as the dew, and arose sunward in thin-spun delicacy of mist. On Mars, the very forests are of stone. In Venus, the lands swim. Now, Lewis does a lot with other passages, but there's, there's a lot that he packs into this one particular space. So I just want to kind of walk through this. Uh, in a, if this were an English class, this would be a close reading kind of thing. Notice, firstly, that the two white creatures are sexless. We are not talking about biology. We're talking about spiritual beings that have taken temporary form. So they're not able to produce offspring. That's not what's in view. Instead, Malachandra is masculine, though not male. Paralandra is feminine, but not female. Lewis does this a lot with, he does a lot with directionality and he focuses on the eyes. Malachandra's eyes have the look of one standing armed, looking outward to protect his world from danger. This for Lewis is the heart of the masculine. The masculine for Lewis is an outward orientation towards defense of the home. Uh, this is what greater physical strength, this is where greater physical strength comes in. This is where any kind of leadership or headship or authority roles come in. None of them exist for their own sake. They exist for protection of the home. Now, notice what, how Venus is different. Uh, Venus's eyes opened, as it were, inward. Her eyes are the curtained gateway to a world of waves, murmurings, and wandering air. Waves, murmuring air, or murmurings and wandering air, all of those are fluid, those are soft, those are gentle. Uh, the feminine for Lewis is an inward orientation towards, the, towards fostering the conditions that are conducive to life. Now, Lewis puts these two images together as complementary pieces, where the masculine and the feminine come together, and in the bond of marriage, those then lead to children, that leads to the home. This is the picture of the fullness of human flourishing. Now, he doesn't get at this in this particular passage, but part of what Lewis also does that's very interesting is he has characters who are clearly masculine characters and feminine characters. Their, their gender is never in doubt. And yet they can acquire the qualities of the other uh, because Lewis has no, he does not have any problem having a quiet male figure who gives advice. He doesn't have any problem having uh, Queen Lucy the Valiant firing arrows in the horse and his boy. But the fact that the quiet man giving advice uh, or the, uh, the queenly or rule who fights like a man with her manly sword until we have faces, these characters are either men or women and there's never any question of what they are. The question is, can they, what attributes of the other are they acquiring? Now, that didn't used to be controversial to say, but it now kind of is. So I think Lewis is just really helpful for being a place to point out, no, there's an essence, but that essence can acquire the attributes of the other. Now, uh, look what he does in that last line. On Mars, the very forest are of stone. The masculine is rigid, it is steady, it is hardy. On Venus, the lands swim. The feminine is fluid, it's changeable, it's lighter, it's more delicate, it's more graceful. For Lewis, these are real differences. They're not differences that are ranked against each other. Instead, they're differences that really complement each other. And putting those together, putting Mars and Venus together, you see the fullness brought into the picture. Now, 
There's more that happens in Paralandra, but I want to jump quickly over to that hideous strength. I'm watching our time and want to make sure we have time for Q&A. In that hideous strength, we get a Lewis takes all of that he does in Paralandra and he builds on it. But he changes the nature of the story profoundly, where that hideous strength is also operating on a cosmic level. It's not really about the exchange between planets, though it kind of is. It's not really about a critique of modern science, though it also does that. That hideous strength is really about a marriage. That's at least the argument that Lewis scholar Michael Ward makes. He thinks we go from a macrocosmic level down to the microcosm. And the way we save all of reality is ultimately by saving a breaking marriage. In that hideous strength, we meet two primary characters. We've got Mark and Jane. They're married. At the beginning of the novel, their marriage is clearly on the rocks. They are relatively newly married in the first couple of years, but already they're going in opposite directions. Jane is dissatisfied, she's discontent, she does not like the fact that her marriage means that she has a bit more responsibility for the home. Uh, She wants to be over there writing her dissertation on John Donne, but she just can't quite get it going, and she's like stuck and dissatisfied. Meanwhile, Mark is over a young sociology professor at Bragdon College, and he is the social climber. And he's always looking for people who can help him get one step closer into the center of an organization or one step higher on the ladder of success. The problem in their marriage is that both of them are bad at being themselves. Jane is insufficiently feminine. Mark is insufficiently masculine. By the end of the novel, their changes result in both of them becoming much more fully themselves. Jane's journey involves uh, learning, going into Ransom's newfound community at St. Anne's, where she uh, meets a character named Mother Dimble. Mother Dimble is delightful. She's this uh, kind of elderly matron lady who never had children of her own, uh, but she sort of combines a uh, pagan priestess with a British Christian wife (laughs) and puts those together in the same figure. And she just is this radiant image of mature femininity that uh, Jane finds very interesting and attractive. It's totally different from like the modern feminist ideas that she had been taught and had been kind of accepted. Jane also learns there that if she's going to have true happiness, she has to learn first to submit to God as her creator and then to God's representative, which in this case is Ransom. And she balks at this. It's a really interesting scene because she tells Ransom, like, wait a minute, submit, submit. That's a, that's a bad word. I don't, I don't do that. And Ransom tells her, no, actually every creature exists in relationship to those that are higher and those that are lower. And it is the responsibility of every human being to learn to receive the submission of what is lower and to give your submission to that which is higher. And that's just how reality works. And she does learn that. And it literally, uh, it, it changes her into a much happier creature by the end of the story. Meanwhile, Mark is getting deeper and deeper into a really weird science cult. Uh, And he he literally, this cult is dedicated to reanimating a severed head and having it be possessed by a demon, all in the name of science. Lewis is having a lot of fun with the science stuff. But the way that this cult is really gonna try to corrupt Mark is by constantly getting him to yield. Uh, He has to, which which is the opposite of Lewis's firmness for the masculine. Mark's yielding comes across, he first has to lie in a newspaper, he then has to cheat other people, he racks up huge debts, and he's always held out, the the next carrot is always held out in front of him, he's always willing to chase it. 
It comes to a conclusion when he's at the last stage before his full initiation, where he's in a room where on the ceiling are dozens of bad modern art paintings. These modern paintings are supposed to fully decenter his mind so that he will lose track of all sense of reality and thus be the perfect vessel for a demon. <laughs> the opposite occurs because he looks at the paintings and he's like, man, these are awful paintings. And then he has this realization that if they're so bad, there must actually be a good painting. And it's at that moment that Marcus hit rock bottom and he starts to rebuild. He builds a firmness that marks him as far more masculine than he had been in the rest of the story. And he realizes that he had been a terrible husband and he had kind of abandoned his wife to chase his academic dreams. And he, had, he really needs to go back to her. Uh, he has this great moment where he talks about the fact that he had, uh, he had uh, trampled in where angels dared to trod. And that's his description of approaching his wife in their, in their bedroom. And he had, he had not done that with any sense of delicacy at all. He had just been an awful husband. The novel concludes with Mark and Jane's reunification, where uh, Mark learns there is a cabin that Jane is going to meet him at. And he goes to the cabin. She's not there. Well, instead of going off and being with other people, uh, Mark goes into the cabin and he waits for Jane. Jane arrives a couple hours later and she sees that Mark has left his coat hanging on a bush outside of the cabin. <laughs> and she picks up the coat and she folds it and she goes in to Mark. That's the end of the novel. Lewis is doing at least two things in that moment. First off, he's inverting our expectations. This is one of the places where the, uh, each of them have an essence, but they can acquire the attributes of the other really comes into play. Uh, we would traditionally expect that Mark would go into the cabin to meet Jane, but instead Lewis is gonna flip that. And he's doing that very intentionally because he set this up where each of them has to make a choice to choose the other. And there's no force, there's no compulsion, nobody's forcing their marriage to come back together. They each, from where they are at, Mark has to choose to actually be there. And then Jane's choice is to actually choose to go in and submit to Mark as her, uh, out of her newfound femininity. The other piece I love is where Jane folds Mark's coat and she just kind of rolls her eyes as, ah, oh, Mark left his clothes lying around again. And then she goes back in. And it's this moment where the Jane at the beginning of the novel who hated every part of domestic responsibility that she might have as the wife in the home, uh, now she willingly accepts that and she accepts that that's, that's part of what she's to do. Her responsibility is to form the home and that does, that does involve a bit more domestic work uh, and she accepts that. Now, all of this is interesting. What on earth is Lewis actually doing? Uh, I want to take you back to the handouts. I didn't have a good quote to pull that was short enough for this from That Hideous Strength. I want to go back to Out of the Silent Planet. This is book one in the Ransom trilogy, where in Out of the Silent Planet, uh, Ransom is kidnapped by two scientists. You might notice a running hatred of, of scientists in this trilogy. Like, Lewis does not like modern science. He has two scientists kidnap Ransom, they throw him in a box, and they ship him to Mars. <laughs> He's, so on his way to Mars, uh, there's this epiphany moment that Ransom has, and that's what's in the quote that's in front of you. I apologize for the spacing on the handout, but it's the part that starts with Out of the Silent Planet, about five lines from the top, where Lewis writes, a nightmare long engendered in the modern mind by the mythology that follows in the wake of science was falling off him. Ransom had read of space at the back of his thinking for years had lurked the dismal fancy of the black, cold vacuity, the utter deadness which was supposed to separate the worlds. 
He had not known how much it affected him till now. Now that the very name space seemed a blasphemous libel for this Empyrean ocean of radiance in which they swam, he could not call it dead. He felt life pouring into him from it every moment. How indeed should it be otherwise, since out of this ocean the worlds and all of their life had come? He had thought it barren. He saw now that it was the womb of worlds, whose blazing and innumerable offspring looked down nightly even upon the earth with so many eyes, and here with how many more? No, space was the wrong name. Older thinkers had been wiser when they named it simply the heavens. The heavens which declared the glory. The happy climes that lie where day never shuts his eye, up in the broad fields of the sky. He quoted Milton's words to himself lovingly, at this time and often. What's happening in this moment is that Ransom has accepted a certain mythology. It's a modern scientific mythology connoted by the term space. It's a scientific astronomical term that precisely describes the distance between planets. And yet his experience is that that mythology failed to accurately explain the world. And he goes back to an older view. He goes back to say, no, actually that term, the heavens, the heavens that connotes the idea of life, that connotes the idea of knowledge, seeing rational beings. Uh, the heavens is a far better term to describe what he's seeing. Now, this is what Lewis is up to, and this is what he does in really all of his writings. He's looking at the modern world. He sees obvious problems where we've gone astray by following usually bad philosophy and bad materialistic impulses, all kinds of things. He doesn't necessarily write a polemic against those things. Instead, he tries to give us living images of what does it look like to embrace a different mythology. So when we talked at the beginning of, or at the beginning of my talk, I mentioned that idea of a mythology as a story that rightly explains our experiences. It's in this sense that Lewis is attempting to re-enchant our minds. He wants us to be able to look at the world and see it as a place of wonder. If we do look at things with a scientific perspective and we name, th we name trees precisely, we should do so without losing the sense of wonder that there is a thing called a tree, <laughs> that there is a small leaf that can manage to grow to something like 20 times its original size and that it can gather energy from sunlight and that the, the wonder of photosynthesis should never leave us, even if we put scientific names on it. Now, Lewis quotes here from one of the Psalms, the heavens which declared the glory, and then he also looks at a line from Milton. Happy climbs that lie where day never shuts his eye, up in the broad fields of the sky. Now, what Lewis then does, what he accomplishes, I think, in these novels is at least two things. Um, he does address the question of gender. It's what I was looking for all along. Um, he does, and he does that by saying, like, look, look how complex the masculine really is. Look how wonderful the feminine really is. And he says these are real things. These are real directional impulses that do work themselves out in our biology and our disposition. And he, but then he preemptively, because again, 70 years before anybody was talking about transgender ideology, he preemptively reframes the discussion. It is not about felt experience. Instead, it's about whether or not we first understand who we are and what we are, and then in that understanding, receive that, receive ourselves as a gift, 
and then express gratitude as the right response to that gift. That's, that's, that's what Lewis is doing on the gender front. But he goes way further than that. <laughs> he doesn't want to, he's not content to stop there. Uh, that's the way that we ought to respond to the existence of other people. <laughs> we ought to see all other people as a gift that is given to us. That's the way we ought to respond to the world as a whole. The fact that we live in a world that has a balance of colored light every morning and every night is a wonderful, fascinating thing. And we ought to never lose sight of the wonder of the gift of sunrise and sunset. We ought not lose sight of the gift of the night of the stars in the sky and the gift of this beautiful world. And all of that brings us back to us as teachers, uh, in a way, because uh, in The Abolition of Man, Lewis does talk about the goal of education. He goes back to Aristotle and says that the goal of education is to help students love what they ought to love and hate what they ought to hate. There are things that we should hate. At Thales, we talk a lot about all of those 15 outcomes over on the board. Uh, we hate failures of integrity. I think every teacher who has had the experience of like students you love that you've taught who cheat, whether you have ever taken a moral philosophy or an ethics class, you hate it. Yes? Like we hate it. Uh, we want our students to hate it. And it's a long game to get them to hate failures of integrity. Uh, we want our students to love strong work ethic. We want our students to see the connection between working hard and finding success. Uh, we want our students to see that when you receive a gift, giving thanks for that gift is the right response. So if Lewis is right, and if all of reality is a gift, if the givenness of reality is part of our experience, because after all, none of us are gods, <laughs> none of us made all that we experience, we grow into the world, we receive it as an inheritance from our predecessors, and we pass that on to our children and the next generation, we receive the gift, the right response is gratitude. When we run into students who fail to respond with gratitude, and whether it's a question of gender or whether it's a question of nature, or whether it's a question of, oh, you were hungry and I'm, I managed to find you an extra lunch on a, on a Tuesday at 1230, uh, would it, then the question is, the answer is still the same. You should respond with gratitude. How do I help you as a student see that you have a debt of gratitude to repay? So that's, that's Lewis. I think he gives us a beautiful picture of the givenness of reality. He helps us better see the world. He helps us better see ourselves and each other. And in doing that, when we perceive that rightly, there's only one right response. And it's the response of gratitude. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button and share it with your friends. If you want to let me know what you thought about the episode, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Your host is Josh Herring. Madison Kay is our audio engineer. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.